Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Hey, before we get the show started, I wanted to let you know we are giving away a bunch of brand new black magic gear. Yeah, cameras, switchers, DaVinci Resolve licenses, a bunch of awesome stuff. So stay tuned to learn how you can enter to win free gear from Black Magic. And we're going to tell you all about it later on in this episode. Now cue the music. Hey, welcome to the 97th episode of Just Shoot It, a podcast about filmmaking, storytelling, and directing. I'm Matt Enlow. And I'm Warren Kaplan, and today we are just uh, the two of us. We're talking, taking listener questions. We've got quite a few stockpiled up, and we are also just catching up, and we thought, why not do like an easy episode? Yeah. Because sometimes you just got to treat yourself well. But also, we have really good questions. We have uh, a couple that I think are good just because... Uh, they are a little bit about what people think the film industry is like versus the reality of it. Uh, and we have a few questions or, you know, kind of favorite questions of like, how do you make the transition from part-time to full-time director? And, you know, basically, what is the grand answer to making it in filmmaking? The answer that Matt and I are still, you know, trying to figure out on a daily basis. Um, but before we get into all of that, uh, let's pitch it over to... Our sponsors, Film Casualty. We sat down with our friend Cameron from Film Casualty to talk a little bit more about the ins and outs of insurance and how the fine folks at Film Casualty could help us out. Hey, Cameron. So when I sold my first feature film, I remember the distributor asked me if I had E&O insurance and I had no idea what it was. And I googled E-N-O and I found nothing. Uh, well, you, you found a great ambient music artist, Brian Eno. Oh, Brian Eno. Oh, yeah. I'd say okay ambient music hey, artist. Can you tell me what E&O insurance is and why somebody might ask for it? Yeah, absolutely. So E&O insurance stands for errors and omissions, and it protects filmmakers from lawsuits pertaining to theft of idea, copyright, infringement, libel, invasion of privacy. This is basically an insurance coverage that is incredibly useful for protecting filmmakers against frivolous allegations of stealing. It's a coverage that also usually pays for attorney fees and the legal costs uh, of defending you in the event that somebody does come after you. So you could imagine why this is an important coverage for when a distributor is initially purchasing your film and getting ready to share it with the world. They want to protect their risk that someone's going to come out of the woodwork and say, hey, 
you lied about me in this documentary, or hey, that's my story and here's the proof. And so this insurance oftentimes has really high deductibles, but it's really important for protecting the assets and the reputations of the distributors who are purchasing a film. Cool, thanks Cameron. For more information about how to protect your film business, gear, project, and crew, go to filmcasualty.com slash just shoot it. That's filmcasualty.com slash just shoot it. Insurance for every kind of filmmaker. Boy, what a good conversation that was, right, Oren? Yeah. Well, actually, the funny thing is I, I called Cameron today because I did this job. Did I tell you about this? I did this job for UCLA, and I already finished the whole job, but they have this rule where you can't be a vendor in their system unless you carry general liability insurance. And so like they said, they'll pay me a little more money to cover the insurance because they knew I didn't have any, but then I had to get insurance. So I applied for it and Cameron is like really helping me navigate that. So I, I don't know. It's uh sometimes a lot of times like this insurance stuff is just like, just something you have to deal with even though you don't want to and it was kind of nice having someone to talk to instead of me googling insurance which is like eight billion google results and nothing that seemed obvious you know what's so funny is today my brother called me he's a photographer up in the bay area and had just booked a gig where he was kind of like putting together a crew and like you know doing all of these portraits for this company and stuff and he was kind of like, oh, hey, I kind of need insurance for this. And I was like, funny you bring that up. I, too, have a connection. So I guess advertising works, at least with the people who <laughs> yeah. have the very least <laughs> Film Casualty <laughs> so got the two of us as, as clients. Um, so, Matt, before we get into the listener questions, can you just riddle me this? What have you been working on lately? Mm. Well, uh I feel very excited because we're recording this on the Tuesday after Sundance, which basically means like it's New Year's Day. People are finally back in their offices. Like I spent the last two weeks hearing like, oh, we'll get back to you, but everybody's in Sundance, man. Do you really believe that? I mean, I I believe that enough people are out of town do you think the people at Funny or Die or College Humor or Go 90 or... I mean, yes, I know there's like the the feature studios are there and Amazon and Netflix, which, by the way, did not buy anything there. They didn't buy anything. No. Yeah, which is interesting. But um, um, but do you feel like the majority of like Hollywood, like kind of corporate Hollywood is there? Uh, no, no. But if their legal counsel is there or their boss is there or you know like it just takes one person from an organization to just kind of throw a monkey wrench in everything right so i guess you can't get contracts done but in terms of like getting to go in and pitch or setting up a meeting or you know having someone reach out to you and say like hey i loved your web series can you have you thought of making it into a tv show like that stuff would still go on ostensibly it would it would still go on but having the easy excuse of like, hey man, Sundance, or an agent being out of town, like oftentimes agents are out and you kind of like, there are enough linchpins in the chain that certainly it's been a thorn in my side for two years running. And I'm always like so relieved when people are back in town. Yeah, last night, so last night we interviewed Pat Bishop and we talked about corporate jargon and I think you just snuck three examples of it into that last sentence. Ooh, hold on. So thorn in my side? Yeah, that's the stretch. Okay. Uh, back in town? <laughs> no. 
Um, the linchpin. Wait, what, what are they then? The linchpin. I'm guilty of it. Linchpin. Yeah, sure. That's like a super corporate thing. And sure. Then, like there's in a book the about being the linchpin. Yeah. Lin- yeah, and the chain. But I've never actually noticed you use anything. But now that you pointed it out last night, I'm I'm in. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. High I sensitivity. Say, <laughs> oh yeah, it really. I, I hear myself. And I'm like, linchpin oh, well. is actually like a really good book though, and I think it's by Seth Godin, right? Yeah, Seth yep. Godin. So it's actually yep. like I would think it's a great book for directors specifically, or most creative people that work on the like freelance creative side as opposed to like the development side. Because Lynchpin is about what you can do to make yourself, like in the grand scheme of things, it's like if you have 20 people working for you and you have to fire 10 of them, you would never fire the Lynchpins at the company, right. you know? Right. And so as a director, it's like if you, if people have 20 directors to choose from and they need to, they're making three movies this year and they need three directors or three digital series or whatever it is, how can you be the Lynchpin? How can you be the person that like, other people have mentioned like, oh, if you could get Matt Enlow, you'd be super lucky. You you'd know? be saved. Yeah, yeah. Like they have these really practical examples. Like uh, if you're a waiter at a restaurant or a server at a restaurant and you remember people's names and they always, they request to be sat in your section. Like when you have to cut the wait staff in half, like that person who has people requesting them is not going to get right. cut. Right. So it's about reorienting your mindset to not just like, you're not just an employee, you know, that's like collecting a paycheck, but you are instrumental to the functions of whatever project you're on so i think as a director that's something i like i'm always thinking about like if i wasn't here with this like i just did these commercials you know like we shot them pretty traditionally because it's a pretty traditional campaign a pretty traditional company pretty traditional market and then of course i think to myself like do i do they i even need to be here <laughs> you know it's sometimes yeah certainly be- i have that thought on commercial sets because right? just yeah like, oh. there's so many notes and clients and you're you're in control to some degree, but a lot of times you are just following directions and you are not a linchpin. And if you died on set, they would finish the commercial and it would probably be about the same as what you did. Basically, I don't If you yeah. lived through it. Anyway, sorry for that yeah. uh, derailment. Oh, no. But yes, oh, no. back to uh, the fascinating world of contracts. Contracts. Well, yeah, so people finally got back into town and uh, I'm dealing with a, a handful of contract negotiations. And I realize that's not a thing that we've really ever talked about. Because I think most of the time you and I, the negotiation is pretty straightforward because it's a work for hire, right? So uh, when it's work for hire, you know, you don't own anything. You don't get any residuals. You do, credits aren't really negotiated very much. You know, like on townies, I negotiated my credit. But like for the most part, it's just pretty cut and dry, right? Right. Um, on commercials or branded content, things like that. Um, but since this is a show that I created all of a sudden uh, there's all sorts of different factors that you kind of have to think about or consider or like even um, decide that you don't care about. And it's interesting because the reason we always say the reason that we have management of any sort is so that they can kind of help with this exact sort of problem because there's a part of me that's like, just give me some money and I'll go make it. Sounds fun. Right. But um, you don't get to retire or, um, you know, even buy a house if you don't actively care about and protect those rights, basically. Well, a lot of the people we have on the podcast, and they would probably include us in that 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 level of director. Like, if we got like a Netflix show or a Comedy Central show, or to direct SNL or a big reboot of a sci-fi series, 
like we would want to get paid as much as we possibly could, but we would do it at any price, you know? And it's like, that's, that's, I think why we don't talk about negotiations that much because it's like, what, you have a Netflix show? Like I would pay to have a Netflix show, you know? Yeah. Um, So it's like you're, you start the negotiations off in such a horrible place because you want it so bad. I think like once you've done like 10 shows or 10 movies or whatever for money, that's when you can either negotiate a lot more money or if you are not that into the project that somebody wants you for, that's when you have the, you know, the most strength because you can just walk away and nothing, you've right. lost nothing. You know, I think not to talk too much about the money part, because I think like the other op- aspects of it, I think are even more interesting, but I feel like, um, I'm generally pretty loosey goosey with that stuff. Um, you know, like if the creative is exciting or, and as if the creative is exciting and as long as we have the resources to pull off the idea adequately, I'm pretty game to do it. Right. But have you ever gotten lowballed on a gig and then you walk onto set and you're like, Oh look, there's a trailer and, uh, you know, this team is much bigger than I was originally anticipating. And, Oh, they definitely did have the money to pay me my rate. I've definitely been lowballed, and every person that works in Hollywood will tell you what's so bad about being lowballed. And it's that it's like a, they're setting a standard for the entire production. Like if they're offering you like a hundred bucks to come direct for the day, a commercial or something, then you know that like the DP and the grips and all those people are getting no money either, and that you're not going to have resources, and it's what you're making is just not going to match what you want to make. Mm-hmm. So that's like why or the respect you want to show your crew for sure. But that's why I like the low ball, I think is usually like, it's such a giant turnoff, but I, in terms of like being low balled and then going to set and seeing like, Oh, we have like a techno crane and all this stuff. Yeah. It, it's happened like in a kind of weird way. Like I've come and been super conservative and I'll be like, Oh, it would be cool to have a steady cam here, but I know we have no money. And then, the producer will say like, "Oh yeah, we could we can get a steady cam. Let me call you. Yeah, I, I got a friend that can do it for like eight hundred bucks." And I'd be like, "Oh, I was not aware that we had like uh, any room in the budget because they had told me that this that's why I'm getting paid so little." You know, you know who's amazing at that low budget spiel is <laughs> our buddy Evan. <laughs> Every project starts at like it can be a ten million dollar commercial shoot, and he'll be like, "Listen, we're really you know we thought the budget was Just- good, but it's like." It's really tight. Like they're just asking for. Yeah, all this we're just crazy tied stuff. on the dollars. Is what yeah. I would say. <laughs> but yeah, so I, I've been in that situation. But I've had like the opposite situation with actors before, especially when I've done non-union stuff, where an actor will get the job and they know they're getting like three hundred bucks for the day, and it's non-union, and they're like a good actor, and they're like, mm-hmm. ugh, like what am I doing? I regret doing this. And they walk on set and they're like, oh, there's a dolly, and there's this, and there's that, and they're like, oh, this is like a real thing. It might actually be good. Like I've had that experience where people are pleasantly surprised and then afterwards like upset that they weren't paid enough. <laughs> yeah, they're like, but, wait a minute. Yeah. But I think anyone being on a good set is like happy initially. Yeah, that's right? true. That's true. Yeah. Including us. Yeah. I, I think as long as long as the... That's why I like to get paid as a percentage, basically. Because then the you budget. know of the budget. Then you know it's commensurate with um, well, so the obviously, size of the production. You don't need to tell us what you're asking for on this project but in general what is it in your mind what is an appropriate percentage for a director to get of the budget uh that's interesting let's say it's a hundred thousand dollar uh one day like digital spot yeah i mean i think to me the starting position is always 10 percent right now 
uh, again, a lot of it comes down to how ambitious the project is relative to everything else and what my crew is going to be making, et cetera, et cetera. So if it was a $100,000 branded spot, you know, 10%, that's 10,000 bucks. That's um, less likely to happen because you, you know, you need to put that money elsewhere on screen. And like, it's more valuable to me to uh, still make a good living, but also not um, have a spot that sucks. I don't need sucky spots, basically. Right. Um, Are you ever like on a low budget shoot and you go out to dinner and everyone's like ordering a ton of drinks and the producer is like, we got it. The production's got it. Or you just see them feeding like all the production people like for a full week, like breakfast, lunch, and dinner, which is yeah, totally and- awesome. But also like, wait, do yeah. like this person is leaving work right now. Do you need to get get them tender greens? Or- yeah, yeah, right. Um, That's funny. Or like when they fly out and then they're staying at a fancy hotel. Yeah. And it's like, oh, like your hotel bill is equal to an additional day of shooting. That money stuff is interesting, but it, I think it just always goes back to a case by case basis. And yeah, in my mind, there's like a certain amount of money, like a minimum amount of money I would like to make per day. And mm-hmm. then um, like that I'm working at all. And on commercial shoots, you know, you're usually paid by, based on shoot days. So I have a rate for that, but it's it's very flexible. <laughs> yeah, I, I think the interesting thing about this is because I created the show and will be directing every episode and show running there's kind of a more pieces to the puzzle than normal and so you're kind of figuring out well okay you know how much is the bible worth and how much is the original idea worth and how much is my ep rate and what are revisions worth and what happens when we put together a writer's room instead of me writing the entire series myself all of those sorts of things you have to figure out in advance uh, of signing those contracts because that locks you in like seasons two three four they're all locked in with a specific pay raise for each of those different parts of the equation right. and so um that's really where the fastidiousness of your team can really be helpful and and the experience right so they're there to help you navigate uh things you wouldn't even think of you know yeah something i used to see a lot when like um i was making kind of lower budget digital shows like for Adam film and stuff, they would give you like $10,000 an episode, go make three episodes or something. Um, and we would, I had like on that show, I had a co-creator. And so we kind of decided to split the money down the middle and I was directing and he was acting and we were both writing together. But then at the end of the day, I was doing like all the editing, all the notes, all the visual effects, all the like technical stuff. And um, I mean, that project was super cool and easy because i'm like really good friends with this person but i've seen situations where one person is just doing so much more work than everyone else but is like getting paid the same mm-hmm. and that's like really why you have to split it up even if it's one person as a director editor producer writer like you got to split it up into each those of those four. roles yeah yeah because then like the main actor uh, if it's like you and your friend that's an actor you're splitting the money 50 50 but you're doing like a hundred times as much work. Right, right. But it's also a tricky thing because sometimes if it were the hypothetical situation of like an actor and a director, that actor could be, you know, have a a following of some sort and and bringing that is also additional value as well. Oh, for sure. it's, It's not just how much time are you, how many hours are you putting in, but also what is, what's the precedent or the, um, you know, the uh, added value that they're bringing to the project as well. 
Um, and so, yeah, it, that's the other reason why it's nice to have people who are kind of arguing on your behalf is so that it doesn't get personal. Right. And they, I like it when it gets personal. <laughs> uh, the final note I'll make about uh, about this contract, just to kind of, we always like to talk about how long things take for people. So this is a show that I uh, have been working on for years now. And boy, I must have talked about it like a year and a half ago now. I sold yeah. it a year and a half ago. That company went away. I got it back or that division dissolved, I should say. And then... Um, I sold it again last summer, like right around CVNT5's production time, and I just got the contract last week. Right. Well, at least you're rich for selling it so many times. I'm rich. No, I'm not. But I think, um, or like when we had Pat Bishop on, it sounds like a large sum of money, but when it's like, you know, a few years of your life, um, that's why you have to have so many different things going at once. And uh, yeah, why. Sucks. We like so to gotta drive Uber between your meetings. <laughs> Just kidding. Well, I hope I hope that gets done quickly. Me too. I think I have a hunch that everything's going to happen all at once. We'll cool. see what happens. But I can't wait to talk about it on the show. Oren, um, yeah. I would love to know. You had a big shoot. What have you been working on lately? Yeah, I had the shoot in Houston. I think I talked about it quite a bit. Um, it was fun. It was two days. It was like, uh, it was hard. You know, <laughs> we had... A crew. Some of them were really experienced. Some of them, I don't know if they'd ever done their the job before the day that they were on set. Uh, and you know, as we all know, like every shoot is ambitious. We were shooting four commercials, but they each had fifteen and thirty second versions that mm-hmm. were different from each other. So we were really shooting eight commercials in two days at two different houses with thirteen different actors. And um, yeah, it was it was tricky, you know, because. You like it's me, the producer, and the DP. Those are the only people from LA, and everyone else is from Houston. And it's a mixed bag, you know. There's like some people that are like union members that worked like for Paramount for 40 years and moved to Houston, you know. Right. Um, right. And then there's I don't know. It's so it was and fun. People was really, who were new. Yeah. Yeah. And then on top of that, there's just like clients and agency and people that you know that have their own things that their own goals. You know, I think when you and I are on directing commercials, we want it to be like a super funny, vibrant, cool, different, unique commercial. But like, for instance, one of the things I wanted to do is shoot handheld. You know, I've been talking a lot about handheld versus uh, sticks. And so I only shot one of them handheld because it felt like very modern family. Like this dad is like trying to show his wife and son this thing that he's like trying to impress them with. And they're not impressed at all. And I just wanted like a real subtle handheld look. And you know, the client, you know, kind of like a traditional conservative, like company that's been around for, I don't know, 50 years or something in Houston. And they, the, the owner of the company was like at the monitor and he's like, this is just shaky. Like, why is it shaky? Like he could not figure out like why the camera was shaking. And we're like, well, it's like hand held, (laughs) but the client was so far away from me that I wasn't really getting this till about halfway through shooting that spot. And then the AD is like, Hey, Orin, they're saying, uh, they just don't like what the camera's doing. They're just saying it's way too shaky. After we'd already shot like half the coverage already. So I told our DP, I was like, uh, can you hold it more still? And he's like, no. <laughs> it's a very heavy <laughs> camera. He had the easy rig. Do you know what that is? Uh, sure, yeah. But um, for uh, listeners at home, the easy rig is like, uh, it's like a backpack that has like a crane. that can, Crane maybe sounds dramatic. Like an like arm hooks, that comes. Yeah, an arm over your head. Yeah, exactly. And then a little cord that 
zips down and mounts the the camera to it. So um, like a bungee cord, basically yeah. takes a camera that weighs fifty pounds and makes it weigh twenty five pounds in theory, yeah. right? Yeah, it kind of it distributes the weight across your whole body, so it's not quite so gnarly. It yeah. also is neat. Like I don't know if Jess gets a little um, reckless with it, but I I know DP sometimes will kind of swing it around a little bit. Yeah, or you just can like get a little camera. Yeah, yeah. Um, or, or like even as a move, kind of like push it away, or like you can because it's on basically a pendulum, and so right. you can get a little a little zany with it which can be fun and yeah cool. we didn't do that well we were as it wouldn't I was be saying, like having the opposite suppose, yeah. problem <laughs> yeah <laughs> but he the, the easy rig is really cool if you want like a handheld look but you have like a big heavy camera and you kind of want to be it's like between handheld and a steady cam <laughs> so when i was pitching to the agency i mentioned i wanted to do some handheld just like energize the frame a little bit and they were like okay like they didn't seem to be for it or against it so i just did it <laughs> And then, um, anyway, that's just that can happen on a shoot in LA also. But on top of that, there was just like a little bit of a sentiment of like a tiny, I mean, a tiny, tiny, tiny bit of this is how we do things here. Like, mm-hmm. so just kind of, oh, can you just do them the way that w- will make us happy instead of the way that you want to do them? And that even came down to wardrobe. Like, I really wanted, I love the, you know, layers. And our wardrobe person who's like amazing said that she's like, there's like this commercial. A uniform for women it's like a blouse and a cardigan mm-hmm. right yeah right like a plain blouse and a cardigan that's like every woman in every commercial is wearing that and so i like that and for men a lot of times like like a button down kind of casual button down with like a vest can, looks cool like layers always looks good look good so right. i was like really pushing for it and they're like well in houston people like don't wear vests <laughs> like yeah yeah and i was like yeah but it, we just want it to look good anyway whatever so it was fun, but I saw the cuts today and they're coming along really well. And they're, the agency is like really including me in all the editing, which is like so super awesome. So I'm excited about it. Um, and then just one other thing, just to get super insidey and, you know, talk about things that probably shouldn't talk about, but I can't think of why. Uh, but just tying it back to what you were saying, the contract negotiations and things. So in commercials, there's like, you know, you get a, a rate for per day. And this was a two-day shoot, and they we'd started working on everything before I even knew what my rate was, which, I mean, I'm sure you've been in that same boat many a time. Sure. Like, you have no idea how much you're getting paid, and you have to be that, like, dickhead that's like, um, by the way, like, what's what am I getting paid on this? Like, when you're on the scout or something, you know? Um, and when they told me what I was getting paid, it was like, it was fine. It was like a great rate, but it was like a little lower than I expected. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, that's the worst is you when you have in your mind the rate that you think you're gonna get. Right, and no my what I had my mind or low. Yeah, yeah, it was based on a previous job I did with the same company. Right. Um. Right. So I was like, so the producer was like, "Is that okay?" And I was like, "Yeah, no, it's totally fine. Obviously, I'm gonna do it. Like, I'm excited, super excited about the project, the great rate, and everything. I was just expecting like a little bit more." And this isn't like a move. It was just me being like honest, you know. Um, Mm -hmm. And then, you know, in the end, they're going to see if they can get me a little bit more. So I guess the lesson here, and and this is probably the fourth or fifth time that this type of thing has happened, is it's not about being a dick or like trying to extract more money. It's just about like when you feel like you're getting a little less than you expected, like just mention it. Like don't threaten. It's not an ultimatum, but... Sure. Um, people like a lot of times will want you to be happy with, with your rate. And also, right. um, 
you know, I'm working probably more than I need to on this job because I want it to be good. And I think if they end up paying me like a little bit more, I think they'll feel like it was like a good move because I am sure putting in a lot of extra work on it. So yeah, money point is ask for more if you feel like you're being underpaid. And if they say no, <laughs> then just say, cool, well, maybe next time, you know, I mean, maybe next time I'll get paid more, but I can still do the job. Anyhow, well, enough about contracts and money and all these uncomfortable things. Let's uh, jump into a new iTunes review we just got from yeah. a real stranger. Yeah, this guy's name is Al Rickba. Al Rickba. Just and kidding, everyone. That's our old pal, Al Rick Purcell. Yeah, who has a podcast, Making Movies is Hard, with Timothy Plain. I think that's right. And, um, uh, and it's awesome. You guys should check it out. And he already came to our live show. Yeah, thanks, buddy. Which was really nice. So he wrote, if you're a filmmaker, this podcast is for you. Oren and Matt provide a wealth of information for filmmakers who are just getting started in their careers, as well as insight for working professionals. The variety of guests they bring on the show is excellent, so you always end up getting a fresh perspective each episode. Also, the non-guest episodes are great, too. Oh, good, because that's what this is. Uh, so don't just skip those. <laughs> skip the solo ones. Those are some of the best episodes of the show. Stop reading this review, subscribe, and dive into a deep pool of filmmaking knowledge. Hey, thanks, man. Yeah, I think he makes some really good points there. Yeah. <laughs> uh, just kidding. I mean, not kidding, but kidding. Sorry. Thanks, no, Alric. Uh, cool, if you thanks, want Alric. your review, uh, If you want your review read out loud on the show, I highly recommend leaving us a review. I'll tell you what, it's real fun to hear your name on a podcast you listen to. It is a genuine delight. You were on Mark Marin. Who are you on? Script Notes. Script Notes. I wrote a question into Script Notes, and um, yeah, I was really excited it. about it. Yeah, I think uh, yeah. Craig even corrected my grammar in the question. Oh, such a Craig so. move. Um, cool. Uh, well, let's cool. Uh, let's get into these questions. Oren, I'm going to put you on the spot, buddy. Did you write an iTunes review for another show? Look... The, this episode is already running long. I can't go into explaining how many iTunes reviews I wrote or did not write. You, okay, you're still you're still workshopping it. I get you. I get you. Yeah. Um, Damn it. Well, I can't can't wait to to read your opus of a review. Yeah. Next what if episode. I write one review and then like we get like a hundred reviews and it turns out that I've been <laughs> plugging up the review chain on our podcast this whole time. Well, let's jump into some questions. It's question time. So our first question comes from Willie Bass Griffin. By the way, we will mispronounce all names. <laughs> Apologies. Apologies in advance. Or Willie Bass Griffin. Uh, Willie says, Good evening, Orrin and Matt. I'm currently in my last few months of school at the LA Film School in Hollywood. My schooling has prepared me for everything from developing scripts to post-producing sound, but it did not, however, prepare me for landing a job in directing. I know there are a number of ways into the industry. My question is, what is the best way to commercial directing? I've already been shooting most of my shorts as commercials anyway, trying to tell stories in 30 to 40 second slots. Should I be looking at interning at some production company until a director seat opens up? Or maybe I should be applying now before I actually graduate. Any help would be amazing. Thanks again for the podcast. Um, well, thanks for the question, Willie. Uh, Matt and I actually brought it up last night. We saw each other and um, we had some different, you know, kind of instincts on it. I had thought that like interning in a production company to wait for a director spot to open up seemed um to put it mildly like kind of like insane but matt told me that that exact thing actually happened with him. that literally did happen to me um which i wouldn't bank on 
There was a lot of luck that ended up happening. But, I'll, you know, Willie, just to give you the, the story, I was interning at the Director's Bureau, which I cold called. They weren't like, there wasn't like a, a form to become an intern or anything like that. And, and I should director's also say... Director's Bureau is like the super, super awesome production company that has really amazing directors on it that does do giant music videos and commercials. Yeah, I kind of, I looked up like, who are my favorite people doing music videos and commercials right now and then i figured out oh these ones are really great and then i cold called them and um they were like yeah come on in hang out um which i don't think that they would be so blase about now because uh you know there was a lawsuit a couple years back um from an intern on black swan who basically had decided to leave the industry. And so he was like, hey, interns are being exploited. This isn't fair. Like, I'm not actually learning anything going to get coffee for people. And like, this is exploitation. And so now uh, corporations in particular have gotten much more stringent on how their um, internship systems work, basically. So yeah, so things have changed a little bit. But yeah, I was just kind of hanging out. And um there was a small music video that came in and uh, I had been, I'd been there for kind of a while, like maybe a year and a half at this point. So I had a decent relationship with a handful of the people there. I'd made myself helpful and useful. um, And like, I was attentive, even if I was a little bit of a nerd, you know? And so, and you made it very clear that you're a director. I made it very clear that I was a, a filmmaker specifically to the, video commissioner and i i had made a reel that was not very good it was quite bad i would say it had like some spec stuff and like some student films and you know i burnt a dvd and made it look as good as i could and one of the things that i had on it was um uh light bright stop motion animation you know music videos were very gimmicky especially at the time um and so anyway uh the video commissioner was like hey matt there's a five thousand dollar video which back then was even less money than it is now um and she was like like you "You get 10 minutes of film to shoot it on (laughs) yeah i mean we shot it on that little panasonic panasonic 24p camera um and then on a point and shoot digital camera that i had but uh myself and another director this guy andy bruntel who uh, has gone on to great things and is a super good director we kind of divided up the work and co-directed it together and we just kind of like hung out for rilo kiley right? for rilo kiley yeah yeah but so that was literally because no one else wanted that job and literally every other director was working like 100 percent of that roster was on multi-million dollar campaigns and i had put in some time there and the video commissioner liked me and knew that i was trying to make a name for myself um but so you can't bank on that but the thing that I think is really helpful and I think would really help you out, Willie, is there's a lot of value in understanding the way the business works, but like who the players are, what sort of style you like, just kind of like sharpen some pencils, as they say, you know, just be around, be helpful and learn the rules of the game a little bit. And then you'll be ready to. Uh, shoot additional spec work and kind of graduate up slowly yeah i mean i guess my experience is just totally different from that like there is maybe kind of that apprenticeship uh idea i just i think it's just so rare nowadays i know when i like first moved to la i knew a bunch of people that were working at like various vaults for production companies 
and then they got to shoot little things and pitch little things and they got they just you know built their community out with these like commercial and music video people um so you know anyway i would definitely like look up a bunch of production companies uh if you don't know any then it's like a good exercise to figure out how to find them because it'll kind of open up your eyes to a whole different world than like the film and tv world um and then you know try to see if if like there's job postings or if you can do an internship or anything um but honestly my like how i would approach it is i would probably just shoot spec commercials trying to do small branded stuff you know make the commercials for friends or you know if you have a friend that like is a tech entrepreneur and needs a commercial for their app that they're trying to sell like do something like that i think it's like ultimately in commercials it's all about the real and building the real uh, plus what matt's saying which is like being in the right place at the right time and being a person that people trust so i think i would say sorry in in addition to being at the right place in the right time that's not a thing that you necessarily can bank on um like that's that was pure luck and most of the time that's not going to happen but what i think is really really valuable is if you understand the the players and the way the business works you'll understand what specs are more valuable to shoot and what I think you're you'll get smarter and more tactical about the way that you craft your career by observing other people's up close. Yeah, it, it really really helps at least for me personally to like love commercials and love advertising and care like realizing that ultimately you're trying to sell a product, you know, it's not about just making cool videos. So, I'm actually going to I think I just thought of my unpaid endorsement right now and it's an advertising related book that I will talk about at the end of the episode so um yeah so good luck with that but i think you know we kind of always go back to the old adage of like build a network of filmmakers that are doing similar things to what you want to do make stuff show it to people don't be shy show people your bad stuff and just keep making it better and better and ultimately you'll get work um but yeah I, i wish it was as easy as like applying to a job in a production company and waiting waiting for a spot to open up cool good luck willie keep us posted all right josh tilton joshua tilton wrote in he says hey Oren, i just recently discovered your podcast and really enjoyed the inf- information you and matt shared i currently live in college station texas i'm 23 years old and have written three feature scripts one spec tv script and will be directing my first feature film this spring i wanted to pick your brain a little bit and was just wondering three questions here we go one What's your biggest tip for maintaining tranquility on set? Two, what was the best move you've made for your career? Three, what would you think is the next step after I make my first feature? Thanks, Oren. Hey, Josh, I hope you don't mind. I'm going to answer these questions as well. <laughs> Sorry, Josh. I shared, I shared your question with Matt. <laughs> the jig I think, is up. I think that question came through my website, which is probably why I it's addressed right. to me. Right. But um, yeah, so let's just hit them one at a time. What's your biggest tip for maintaining tranquility on set? Tranquility on set. I mean, honestly, um, I don't care about tranquility on set, Matt. Um, I I care a little bit more, I think, probably. I maybe to a fault want people to have a, a good time and for things to feel good because I, I think that that can create better comedy and stuff. But I actually, over the last few years, have learned to care about that less. Um there's a difference between um, maintaining your own tranquility on set 
and and the set in general being tranquil and i guess actually the answer is the same for either if you are calm and if you keep your head together then i think the rest of that attitude trickles down and and the rest of the crew um stays calm and tranquil and uh, focused uh so i think my big tip actually is um not delaying making a decision you know i i take a second i think about it i think about you know it's a, even if it's a big 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 one i think about it i make my decision i tell that to the team that needs to know it and i move on yeah for sure and also just be really forthright with what makes you comfortable like what you want and, and we talked about this on the last episode but it doesn't matter like what the right way to do it is like on my last shoot the way that the notes were coming from the client to our set i really didn't like and i pulled the ad and the producer aside and i said hey guys this notes process is not working for me let's try to do it like this instead you talk to this person you talk to this person then you say it to me like not in a mean way at all but just like i could tell that there was like this element that was introducing this chaos that i didn't like um and was Mm -hmm. kind of setting off making the actors uncomfortable and just kind of slow and clunky and so you know whenever you see something that's not working go do it um the one thing i i really wanted to do on this set on this last shoot but it was only a two-day shoot and i felt like weird doing it so i didn't do it but that greta gerwig like name tag thing like i feel like every that should just become the norm on every set that everyone just wears a name tag it would just make life so much easier yeah so that just to remind listeners greta gerwig uh picked up i think from mike mills who was at the director's bureau the uh the trick of having name tags where every crew member has their name written out, which I think when you're on like a student film feels maybe a little less important because like you, you're all classmates and you probably know each other. When you're a working director, you meet a brand new crew, you know, multiple time. times a year. Yeah. So, but it's not just for you. It's for like, let's say you have and that's 30 one people. person, like yeah. one, like a new set dresser. Cause the set dresser I usually work with is, isn't available. Sure. Like to me, they're like far away. I don't want to be like, Hey, art person art department can you move that yeah flower you just put down i'd much rather say hey james you know um and i if he had yeah. a name tag on i would know his name was james so uh, that's i think something i haven't done yet but i really want to do that i do believe will kind of create just make things yeah more. a little more tranquil because people will just kind of address each other with a little more respect just because it will be easier to do do you uh do you carry a call sheet with you no I mean, everything I carry, I just lose instantly. Yeah, because I will, uh, in the morning, I'll take my sides and a call sheet, and I'll write my name on top of it, and I fold it in half and put it in my back pocket. You feel like a jerk sometimes when you need to, like, <laughs> right. check you're your, like, hey. your call sheet. And, like, and you're, like, unfolding, uh, like, uh. Yeah, yeah. You kind of have to, like, find a little moment and then go ahead and say it. But, you know, in a pinch, that can be helpful as well. Yeah, there are certain positions that are, like, really important to know the names of the people, like uh camera operators and acs you know and if you have like a three camera shoot that's like six people on top of your dp um that you need to basically be like oh can you pan left can you do that can you go hair wider like those types of things when you have more than one camera you can't just yell that out because you want to really direct it to a camera um you know you can say a cam b cam c cam but then it it feels impersonal yeah and i'd forget which camera is which based on sometimes they'll move around and they're out of order so I don't know um, how common practice this is, but I remember actually I was a, a PA on a pickup day for Thumbsucker, Mike Mills's first um, feature, 
And I remember like running around or whatever and being super impressed by his ability to remember the name of all of the uh, camera operators and stuff. And then I realized someone had written the operator names on each corresponding monitor and then the AC as well. Yeah. Um, And I wonder if that was a thing that he had requested or not, but like that's certainly a thing worth doing. Yeah. I've seen Um, that before, but now I don't know if I've ever like, kind of intellectualized it as much as now that you mention it now if i yeah. have more than one camera maybe i'll ask them to do that if they haven't already yeah. done it yeah it's nice cool well um, let's uh, move on to cool. the next question uh yeah what was the best move you made for your career um hmm. i mean it's so hard to tell because you know these like our careers are kind of episodic you know you you get a jump mm-hmm. and then you kind of level up and then you go do and then you make something but uh, I, I think like buying a camera is obviously uh, like something that's super helpful, I think, for everyone. But nowadays, even with your iPhone, you can make some pretty yeah. great looking I, yeah, stuff. I never owned a camera, um, well, but I was around. It explains everything. No, I'm just kidding. It does. It does. No, I, I think I would be a different filmmaker if I had owned a camera, certainly. Well, I feel like you um, you made Squaresville, which was a little bit more of a defining... like. It was kind of your your calling, not it was a calling card, but also just like yeah. a proclamation, like, "Hey, yes, I work in development, I work at Comedy Central, but this, I am a filmmaker, you know." Uh, and right. then you can go yeah. to a party, and when someone someone asks what you do, you're like, "I'm a director," you know. You don't say like, yeah. "Well, I'm yeah. a- aspiring to direct," and that that shift yeah. is like a really big move in everyone's career. Yeah, and I I think also the scope of the series was really helpful because I think it's different if you're making a short or uh, even a shorter web series. Um, I see oftentimes really talented filmmakers nervous to proclaim like, oh, I I make movies or I make series or whatever. I'm a director. You know, I think that um, people get nervous about saying that or saying, oh, I'm a writer. But like, saying like oh i made this series it's you know feature length it's 16 episodes long plus all this ancillary content and stuff and then we did two seasons it took away any sort of trepidation about whether or not i was saying that i was director so that was nice yeah i mean i guess just to double down on that like proclamation of being a director probably the best move i made is uh i was an engineer making short films in the bay area and i just said on this date i'm moving to hollywood and i'm willing to lose it all you know but i just i feel like i'll regret not doing this um so making that did you move on that date yeah well sorry sorry i keep bringing everything back to money but i had like a certain amount of money i wanted to save up before i moved to la so that i wouldn't have to work for a little while and so when i hit that amount of money it was literally it coincided with like annual reviews at the company i worked at and they're like here's your Mm -hmm. bonus and i was like did the math i was like okay I hit the number. I was like, awesome. Thank you. I quit. Um, And then they actually tried to not give me the bonus. And I was like, but isn't it for like my previous work? And they're like, well, it's more to motivate you to do future work. Sure. And to my boss's credit, he, he fought like all the managers and they gave me the bonus. Oh, nice. Yeah. Um, So Um, question three. So Oren, this one, number three, what would you think is the next step after Josh makes his first feature? I think after, you make a feature. I mean, you know, we hear this answer all the time is you just got to keep making stuff, have scripts ready, go to festivals, 
I think that's really when like the parallel processing starts in your career. Mm-hmm. Like keep pushing the feature. A lot of people make the mistake of like they're so exhausted by the time they're done making the feature that they never like push it out into the world, you know, because they're so exhausted. Mm-hmm. And you never know if your movie like Paranormal Activity. We talked about this movie before, like got rejected from every film festival and ended up being like a giant, massive, like theatrical hit. So it's like just kind of making sure your movie connects with an audience, I think is important. Uh, And then also just using the momentum from that movie. Like let's say you made a movie about, you know, air guitars and then you have a pitch about like a, some other, like a musical, you know, then like, see if you can kind of draft drift, What's it called when you like you drive behind a car yeah. really close? Yeah, uh, drafting. It's drafting. Yeah, yeah. drifting you, is when you skid and turn yeah. at the same time. Right. See if you can use your feature, even if it's not done yet. Even if it's like we're just applying to festivals now, but we talked to like the guy at Sundance and he's like super stoked. Or I emailed Liz Manischel about this and she seemed positive. Um, like even if you're just there, like use that energy and excitement to talk to people about your other project. That's like somehow related to your first project, but different in a really cool way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And then, then you've got a trajectory, right? Then yeah. it's not, you're not just a one-off filmmaker. I would say, uh, you know, just imagine, you know, it, it's a tremendous amount of work to distribute your movie. So like doing the festival circuit, you know, that takes a lot of money and that takes a lot of your free time, you know, all of your vacation days, if you've got a day job or spent, traveling to different places and then you know you're shaking hands with all these people and you're meeting all these other filmmakers and so you know your time is precious and it's very easy to get caught up in that because it's super fun um you know when you're at those parties and you're with these other filmmakers it's really ideal to be able to say oh this is the next thing i'm working on and then then regardless of whether or not you're going to get a distribution from this dealer from this person or not you probably aren't right 99 percent unlikely right but like you're still meeting these people practicing your pitch learning how to communicate about your film with them and uh so that when it comes time to talk to somebody who can actually do something meaningful for your film you're well rehearsed in how you talk about it and also you've talked to a lot of other people and you've learned what you like about the way they present their film and maybe what you like less. Yeah. And just, I think always keep in mind that in general, you don't want to, you don't want your career to be represented by one movie. You want mm-hmm. it to be represented by a trajectory, like Matt said. And so if you always keep that in mind in every conversation you have, um, this movie, this is what, I, why I love my movie and this is why it's great. And this is what I learned. And this is like my next move. Um, I think it will be, will be helpful. So thanks, Joshua, for writing cool. in. Yeah, way to go. I love uh, Texas filmmakers, man. So much Texas pride. College Station, shout out. 23, three feature scripts, the spec. Yeah. And he's directing his first feature this this spring. Go awesome. kill it, Josh. You're awesome. ahead of the curve. So <laughs> whatever you do, it'll probably be fine. Um, so the next thing, it's not really a question. It's actually an email we got from James Oliver. He had sent us a pilot in a web series that he had directed And he says here in his email, I'm just going to push my luck and send my web series pilot through. I'm directing an eight-part web series that I've written. I'm currently trying to pitch the production company's agents and potential sponsors for funding. I've attached a working draft of our pitch deck slash treatment. 
I have no experience with these really, so it'd be amazing if you could give me any notes on all that too. Thanks for your time. And so I looked at the, I watched the pilot and I looked at the treatment and the treatment was cool. It's like this psychedelic comedy with a lot of psychedelic music and visuals. It, it's it's really neat. Kind of like a like slacker, slackers meet train spot in a way. Um, but uh, I had written him back and I said, you know, to be honest, I don't know what pitching a web series like that you're already making and directing. Like I had never heard of a company buying a already made web series. Um, what's, what's your take on that, Matt? Um, you know, I actually Squaresville, we did, we did just that actually, uh, which again, it was like a lot of dumb luck. I, I didn't have a, a proper pitch or anything, but I'd met a, um, a person, an owner of a company, Sarah Penna, who was, uh, had just started Big Frame at the time. And she and I were on a panel together and I was like, oh, I've got this show and it's, I'm looking for a home for distribution for it. And, you know, I was like, hey, here's this awesome thing that's got all of this ancillary content and all of this heat and like a great uh, rollout strategy. And it just kind of made sense. Well, so um, do you think it would have made sense if there was no heat? Because that's kind of... We get questions of this vein a lot, or people just talk about this web series that they're making and they're hoping to sell, and they're making all this presentational material for it. But I just don't know what value it has until it's on YouTube or Facebook or Vimeo or whatever, and has the views. Um, like yeah. because you you didn't have to make a pitch deck for Squaresville to sell the tone and the characters and why people will like it, because you can say like people actually like it. Here's the views. It, here's it the tweets. No, no, no. It hadn't launched yet. Oh. Not even the yeah. first episode or the first season? Not even the first episode. Yeah, nothing. Oh, so what was the heat that you were selling? I, I think that I had been telling people about it and had been meeting a lot of people about it and they were excited for it. And the I had kickstarted at that point. So like people had seen little tiny pieces here and there. Um, and I could talk about, you know, the potential in a lot of ways. But the it's, it's not a really easily re- replicatable thing, but... How do I explain this? There's a a thing about pitching that is really, it's hard to quantify, but like having status or coming from a place of authority or um, like someone being aware of your background a little bit, I think is really invaluable. If someone has heard of you or like they think of you as a peer or as a exciting filmmaker, rather than coming in cold, that... Um, that's invaluable, you right. know. But is that the long way of saying that you worked at Comedy Central and you were on a panel with this person, so she instantly kind of trusted respected you? Respected me? Yeah, 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 I I would say so. Um, and I, my agent knew her a little bit, and it. I wasn't on the panel because of Comedy Central, though. I was on the panel because I was, I'd already made some web series and I had connections, basically, in that world. And so I could speak eloquently about like a new emerging business basically and so comedy central was part of it but you know it was more that people had heard that the series was good and they were excited about it which is you know again it's hard to replicate so it's it's, i'm hesitant to really right well yeah we'll stop hesitating no one wants to listen to us hesitate (laughs) um but uh i think yeah i think the point of this whole conversation is that i'm probably wrong most of the time with the advice i give uh, James did write back and he said that um, there's a 
BBC Three is like a digital BBC, or it's mm-hmm. a station. I th- I'm sure I'm wrong, but I think it's like a television station that airs a lot of digital stuff in mm-hmm. the UK where he's from, and that their show might be a good fit for that. So, you know, there's new companies popping up and all over the place. But I guess if I was making a web series independently and already like in the throes of making it, I would just like put it up and get it out there and try to get people to see it um, as opposed to like try to pitch it in the middle as to try to sell it as a web series. Maybe if it's a TV show, it's a whole different thing. Like I would show a a high maintenance, my web series to HBO and try to get them to buy it as a TV show. Mm -hmm. But I don't know. I don't know how much time I would spend trying to get sponsors for my web series. Yeah. Personally. Yeah, it's tricky. I think also, like, if you've already made it and you've already spent the money, why not just... um? Yeah. He also... The, James the calling also, card is the value, you know? Right. James also mentioned that, like, a local restaurant had, like, taken a credit and given them free food, which, yes, that, that is, like, a different... <laughs> that's a different type of thing, but I don't know that you need a pitch deck for that type of relationship. Yeah. Yeah, kind of need a cousin uh, that knows the owner. <laughs> yeah, I think also um, just having a great trailer is, is generally all of the promotional materials you need, and a, maybe a good one sheet. You know, right? But just like something quick and concise that they can watch and absorb really quickly that gives them the tone and style and everything. Because there will be circumstances where you need to kind of explain your show, and someone's not going to have time to watch every single episode. Yeah, and I guess I'm not saying you shouldn't ask for sponsorship or help or try to sell it, but don't don't make that a part of your business plan of making the show. <laughs> like yeah, make the show, and if that stuff happens, it's great. And if it doesn't, then who cares? Because you are going to show it to people anyway. Yeah. So our final question, number four. You want to read it out loud? Yeah. Jacob McPherson. Hi, Orin and Matt. I'm 23, and I've been assisting a wedding videographer for the last couple of years. It works well because it's mostly a one-day shoot on a weekend. I want to start picking up crew jobs on commercials and shorts, but I work full-time. I'm married, so I can't room with a few friends and drive Uber. Jacob listens to the show. I like that. That's that's a good point. Uh, what jobs do you recommend? What would allow me greater flexibility with my schedule? How do you spend a week crewing and keep your job? Right now, I'm only applying to one-day jobs. We had reached out to Jacob specifically because we were curious to know where he lived. Because this situation is a little different if you live in L.A. or New York or Chicago or one of the big film towns, Austin. Um, and he wrote us back and he said he lives in Sacramento, uh, shout which out. is in California. Yeah, uh, and also to, where I'm from. That's alma mater. Yeah. Yeah. Hometown. Uh, but he said that he regularly drives down to Los Angeles. Okay. So I guess like the super obvious answer is <laughs> if you make your own stuff, you can control all of that, right? You can write at night, edit at night, shoot on weekends with the goal that ultimately your stuff will be good enough to get you paid so you can quit your full-time job uh that is much easier said than done i think yeah yeah jacob think? i think it's tricky right because so just to to make sure that we're clear you've got the full-time job and then you're picking up these wedding videographer gigs uh on the weekend and so you're trying to gain more experience um on commercials and shorts but you also want to make sure that you have your expenses covered with your full-time gig. Um, So I guess there's kind of two questions, really. Like, are you aiming to... If you're aiming to direct and write, then, yeah, you're right. Oren's exactly right. The answer is simple. 
shoot on the weekends um, when you're not a wedding videographer and keep that full-time job, right? Because, you know, there are the realities of just needing to live, right? Um, If you're looking to crew and gain experience that way, I think that the gift of having a full-time job and picking up gigs in San Francisco on the weekends, um, you know, there are other markets that that are close as well. Uh, and working for free a little bit, I think will get you there a little bit faster. The the hard part is, you know, you start building out that network and before you know it, they're like, hey, Jacob, you were really awesome. Come work with us on a Friday as well. And you have to turn it down because you've got the job job. Right. Or you, I guess what I did when I was an engineer in San Mateo, everyone I worked with, all my bosses and everyone knew that I really was into making short films. Uh, they would always be involved in them. I'd like drag them into it. So mm-hmm. I was really upfront, right? Like they had a good time, right? Yeah. And when I left the company, everyone was like excited. They're like all like the bosses and managers and everyone was like, Oren, let us know like what, like what you're doing, you know, like that sounds so fun, what you're going to, to try to do. So, you know, if you have that type of manager that is excited about, you know, filmmaking and doing that stuff, maybe they'll be, uh, they'll give you some leeway. You know, if you don't, one thing I just thought of that I kind of did when I first moved to LA is I took classes at Santa Monica College. It's like mm, a community right. college. Yeah. They have night classes, they have weekend classes. And I believe that most of the people that I took the classes with were either full-time students or had other full-time jobs. Um, and so that might be like a community you can kind of try to meld into. Like yeah, uh, the other filmmakers, camera people. I took like an awesome lighting class when I lived in San Francisco. Um, they had like an access cable access station that sure was te- taught people how to do things. And my brother, he's an engineer. Uh, he works full time for Sony in San Francisco, and he makes short films on the weekend. And he has this whole film community that he met in San Francisco of just people that you know all want to write and direct and make things, but they're all like making a ton of money as kind of tech gurus during the day. So I think. I don't, I don't know if that, that answers anything, but I think if you find that, sorry, my short answer is find people that are in your same situation and make stuff with them. Yeah, I, I think that's the way to go. And that will get you more experience and eventually will help you transition out of this day job and into a full-time filmmaking job. Yeah, if um, that's a goal, which by the way, it's totally fine if it's not the goal. Totally okay. Yeah, and I think Sacramento is a really great town to make fun things on the weekend. It's a, it's a, city filled with artists who also have day jobs you know um you know most of my friends back home are in a band or something like that um and also like have a job that they really like so uh that's a great life as well um and it kind of just depends on what you want but either way making stuff on the weekends gets you to either goal so i would um, say uh one of my top three movies of 2017 was shot in sacramento well, it was mostly shot in Los Angeles. Are you with serious? A B, B unit in Sacramento. Yeah. Ah, what a Lady Bird. Yeah. Well, they did shoot some stuff. The, but yeah, it's a lot of B roll. It's a lot of B roll. Oh, but good. to their credit, they're like the locations are very evocative of the places that they were trying to replicate. Cool. Um, from my youth. Well, thanks everyone for asking us questions. I hope our answers were helpful in some way. I feel like. These answers, usually I feel like our answers are like a C minus D plus, and I think these are like in the B zone. I feel pretty good oh, about this. All these right. Answers. Well, usually it's like, uh, just move to LA and like 
build a network of people. <laughs> like these really vague answers. Yeah. But I think we were more specific this time. Um, cool. Anyway, well, thanks for writing us questions. If you want to ask us anything else, you can tweet at us or uh, at Just Shoot It Pod on Twitter. You can email us, justshootitpod at gmail.com. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, whatever. Uh, so just reminding hey. you that we are going to do unpaid endorsements. Don't worry. But I just want to remind people that like we love getting the questions. And uh, even if it's not a question, like you want to show us something, one of us tends to respond to most of the emails. So feel free yeah. to communicate. Listen, I do a lot of stuff on the show, Oren. No, I didn't Oren, mean that. Oren, Oren's the one who does all of the emailing. It's, well, it's a, Matt does the hard stuff, and I like give my opinions when I'm procrastinating <laughs> on like, random people's reels. Uh, but uh, they are uh, it is really insightful, so I'm glad it's getting done. Um, don't forget, we can also you can also leave a voicemail two six two six shoot one. Love those voicemails. But also, I was going to say, if you've written in before. And uh, you have an update. I would love to hear some updates from listeners. Oh, for sure. Um, just like kind of what's going on now. Has the advice helped? Have you figured out something even better than we said, which is pretty likely? Um, I'd love to share that stuff with listeners. So um, hit us back up, everyone. Well, let's go into our unpaid endorsements. Da, 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 da. Okay, so I'm going to do three real short, quick ones. Number one is just because we talked about it earlier, Lynchpin. I did really love that book. I highly recommend it. I heard about it from this guy named Nick Campbell, who has a website called Grayscale Gorilla, and he does tutorials on Cinema 4D, and he like loves like work hacks and life hacks and like the six-hour work week and all that annoying stuff. And most of the things that he recommends, the podcast and stuff, I don't like, but this book, Lynchpin, I really loved. And it's called Lynchpin, Are You Indispensable? And it's basically about why it's important in any group of people to make yourself indispensable um i mean we all know it but it it kind of digs deep into it uh my next recommendation is a book that i when i first started working like more in more traditional commercials like let not the branded content but like real advertising like 30 second tv commercials or even like being involved like seeing like billboard campaigns and radio campaigns and all that stuff i felt like i was painfully uneducated about the advertising industry which is like a gigantic industry, uh, you know, it's way bigger than the film industry. So I kind of just looked up what books I should read, just like the primers or primers, however you pronounce it. I think it's um, primers. And one of them is Ogle. It is a book called Ogilvy on advertising. Um, it's by David Ogilvy, who's considered to be one of the one of the gurus of modern advertising. It's kind of an old book, but he talks about. You know, like what messaging works and doesn't work in a newspaper article, in a TV commercial, in a radio jingle. Um, And it's just like really, it really changes the way you think about commercials when you're making them. And just a reminder of what the point of advertising is. And really, at the end of the day, it's like how you can engage people in a way that informs them about your product and hopefully shows them why they should care about it. So I don't know. I, I really enjoyed Ogilvy on advertising. Last thing. Uh, it's something that just occurred to me on this Houston shoot. It's beyond obvious. I'm sure, Matt, you've always done this. I'm sure in the art department, this is like art department 101. You know, as a director, like one of the first things you do when you get to set is you set up your shot. You know, and a lot of times we start with like our master shot or our widest shot to try to figure out the scene, especially in a comedy. And there's a lot of set dressing and art deck and like this big white wall. Let's put a painting up there. Let's bring a plant or let's move here you know, let's figure out a better camera angle. 
everyone is kind of waiting on that camera angle to be set and the art to be dressed and the actors to be in place and wardrobe and makeup, right? And lighting. Then we're shooting. But something I realized on this last shoot is that the art department, you know, they're going to be working till the last second, right? They have to, especially if they only got into the location that morning, they have to dress an entire kitchen or a living room or a whatever disco party. And they have a crew It could be a one person crew or like a 10 person crew. Um, and they start working on things. Well, what I realize is that for me, it like, I hope that every art department does this, but they should always start from the camera back. Right. Like if you're shooting someone sitting at a table and there's a couch behind them and behind them is a kitchen island behind out the window. There's like some people playing like jumping on a pogo stick or whatever. Like you shouldn't be giving the kids the pogo stick right now. You should be figuring out what's like on the table that's like right in front of the camera because Mm -hmm. that's going to have such a huge impact on the camera angle, the camera height, the lens size and all those things that the pogo kid might not even be in the shot by the time we're done framing things up. And if you're working backwards, forwards towards the camera, which I think might be some people's instinct because they want to stay out of the way, mm-hmm. um, then you're really, you know, causing a disservice to the camera people who are trying to frame up a shot, you know, and, and comp- to yourself, and, and to yourself, because like the worst thing is when you dress space that ends up not even being in play at all. Yeah, for sure. That, and then also just how many times have you set up a shot that you had in your mind? You're like, I'm going to get this awesome shot. You're like, this is just ugly. This wall looks weird, or this painting looks weird, or this color looks weird, and you need to reimagine the whole thing. Um, But you can't figure out if it's going to look good or not because, you know, there's no plant or whatever you're going to dress it with because your art team is all busy far away. So that's kind of my new... Yeah, I love that. I and I would idea. not have ever thought of that. I love that. Yeah, That's the really only cool. reason I thought of it is because in this shoot there's this giant white wall and everyone's like, "So, are we ready to go? What's going on?" And I'm like, "Well, I honestly don't even know if the camera's going to stay here because this frame is so ugly right now, and I don't know if we're going to keep it until they put this art up here, but they're working on some jars in the far background." <laughs> so I called the production designer and was like, "Robbie, get the can we get the picture up?" He's like, "Oh yeah, sure." Yeah. Um, so You said you wanted these jars though, Oren. Yeah, and I did, and I, it's weird. I've done a lot of shoots, and this is the first time I really kind of thought about the order that sets should be dressed. Yeah, that's interesting. Cool, man. Great stuff. Well, kind of on that tip, um, there's a great article in Filmmaker Magazine called The Seven Arts of Working in Film. Have you read this one, Warren? No. A Necessary Guide to On-Set Protocol. And it basically just kind of walks through what it's like to be on set um, why people are acting the way they're acting and how best to uh, learn from a set and to become a, um, a, a a linchpin, really, essentially. So it's got great tips like, um, you know, the metaphor of the flashlight, right? So it says, like, imagine that you were in a dark cave with a group of people and all of you are running around in different directions. In a corner of the cave is a flashlight, which is spinning through the room. Suddenly the flashlight lands on a single person. Everyone stops until that person does his or her job. No one can move forward, right? So it's it's kind of just talking about the mechanics of a set and helping you understand... The hurry um, up and wait mechanic. The, right? hur- the hurry up and wait mechanic and also... Um, why things work the way they do and also how to be as respectful and smart as you possibly can. So like it's simple stuff, but it's, it's really valuable. Put your stuff away, put your gear away, be on time, take pride in the details, all of that stuff. So it breaks down um, 
all sorts of different pieces of protocol and it was really great i thought it's like i wish someone had sent this to me my first day of film school um because i think it would have been really illuminating and i think it's worth rereading even if you're really experienced because it helps you kind of put a fine point on things that maybe you thought about or learned in the past and really helps kind of solidify those ideas so i thought it was really great uh, yeah, I'm this, skimming through it now. It looks kind of awesome. It's like, awesome, right? <laughs> it's like, how have we not seen this? How was this not our first unpaid endorsement, right? Yeah, it's from 2015. Like, throw yeah. away your trash when you're on set. <laughs> yeah, Act stuff like that. That's Put such a good away. little nugget. Yeah. Um, so it's called The Seven Arts of Working in Film, A Necessary Guide to On-Set Protocol. And then my other one, did we talk about this yesterday? I know we talked uh, about it, but not on the mic. You mentioned um, it, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Search Party Season 2. You can get it all. It was on TBS. Uh, I watched it on Amazon. I paid for it, and it was worth it, you guys. Season 1 is very good, right? And, like, it's about uh, a group of, like, hipsters who um, become, like, detectives and try to find their missing friend. And uh, the cast is really incredible. Everyone's super funny. It's by the people who did Fort Tilden, which was kind of a South by Southwest darling a couple years back. Um, and it ends on a pretty big cliffhanger. And I remember thinking, well, how on earth are they going to give us a season two? Because like season one is about solving a mystery. And so you get like a, a solid answer to the question, a satisfying answer to the question that of course creates bigger questions and more problems for the characters. But like if season one is about finding a person and then, in some sense, they find the thing they're looking for. What on earth could season two be about? Well, they nail it. So season one is like kind of more Nancy Drew kind of like sleuthing. And season two is like full on Hitchcock anxiety. And uh, oh, cool. I full on loved it. So season one is like a little slow to begin with, but then gets really good. Season two is A plus every episode through. So search party okay. season two. Love it. I will check it out. Maybe yeah. I'm like four episodes into season one. So right now my wife and I are like four episodes into like 10 different shows. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I would say push through. Cause also in season one, you know, it's about people who are terrible and self-centered and really annoying. And so it's a little hard to care about them. But once you do and you lock into the rhythms of the show, it becomes really funny and great. Yeah. Um, yeah. If you guys want to endorse something to us, give us any feedback, email us, just shoot a pot at gmail.com. Check us out on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. We're all over the place. Leave all us a review things. on iTunes, please. We'll read it on the show. Plug your whatever you write, we'll read. I had to yeah. say wowee the other day. Yeah, it was pretty embarrassing. Pretty fun. <laughs> I lost four jobs after I read that review. <laughs> wowee. Uh, thanks Oren uh, our music was provided by the Free Music Archive and the artist Jazar this episode was edited by Jay McAuliffe and the webmaster is Ewan Williams I think that's everything that's all she wrote we'll catch you next time thanks everyone bye, bye. mom 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.